That is Herb Alpern, the T1 of Brass, and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance on a Tuesday. It is his weekly Monday appearance, but imagine this. It's on a Tuesday. It is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And what follows as he does every week, Dave Cameron analyzes all baseball. In particular, this week we consider how Dave Cameron will use the ballots he's been assigned for BBWAA voting. Uh, that is for NL Manager of the Year and also NL MVP. NL MVP. I ask him what methodology he plans to employ uh, in both cases, I suppose, although the, the managerial one is in some ways more interesting because it's much more mysterious. We talk about the Sabre Seminar that just occurred this past weekend, a great event, it seems, for an even better cause. And those who make the decision to tolerate uh, the conversation that follows will, in fact, learn the identity of the GM about whom Dave Kerman said the following at that Sabre Seminar. And then I uh, exposed him as a secret agent of Fangraphs. It's Fangraphs Audio. It features Dave Cameron, the managing editor of Fangraphs, and it begins right now. Cameron, hi. Hey. It's podcast time. It is. It's time to well, record our weekly podcast. Yeah, actually that was like uh, 20 hours ago. Yeah, right. This is our, uh, this is your typical, I've probably said the introduction, which you won't have listened to, which is fine. It's fine. You have, I understand. You have things to do. But, uh, you have, uh, this is your, Mickey, this is your Monday appearance on a Tuesday, I've said, and then I've repeated your Monday appearance except on a Tuesday. Yeah. We're, we're delayed. Yeah. That's fine. That's yeah. fine. You, uh, the reason you are not here is because you were at the Sabre Seminar, something about which I will ask you momentarily. Uh, but I would like to note, uh, in the meantime, that uh, a, a listener, and maybe he was voicing the opinions of many, a listener uh, from last week's edition of Fangraphs Audio, your appearance on it, uh, suggested that uh, we both ought to have our BBWAA credentials removed, our membership stripped of us because of all of the squeaking last week. <laughs> uh, well, I think now that you have a dog as well, yeah. which I guess is breaking news to people who... Uh, might not know that. Yeah. Uh, the squeaking should only intensify. For yeah, I think it might. Yeah. yeah. I've given her a Kong toy with some uh, Cheerios yeah. inside of it. Nice. Does she? Is it a, like a puzzle for her, or does she give up? No, she's yeah. She keeps looking at it even after they're all gone. I guess she wants uh, to really get into it. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, Liberty has never been a big fan of these like puzzle toys. We've gotten a few of them where you stuff them full of treats, and they're supposed to like get them out and, and play with themselves, and it, she, she gets bored. <laughs> she doesn't like playing with herself? Yeah, not so much. <laughs> okay, that's good to know. Uh, well, we, we, we don't have to dwell on dog talk because uh, I have so many questions, but the, other, the thing that um, struck me by that comment is I think is um, it is significant um, with regard to an event that has happened in the most recent week, which is you actually have been uh, given the opportunity to exercise one of the rights of the, or not rights, but one of the privileges of the BBWAA member. Correct. I I am lucky enough to be assigned to the Atlanta chapter because it's the closest major league team to my house, and uh, the Atlanta chapter is exceptionally small, maybe the smallest of all the chapters. Uh, so because of a lack of other people to give award ballots to, I will be voting for both the NL... Manager of the year and the National League MVP this year. Right. So if it were, uh, if you were to say, if you put 
if all of the BWA members, if all the BWA was a book, how long in pages would the Atlanta chapter be? Uh, well, there's only two of us. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I mean, I think there are, so there are more members in the chapter. The, uh, the trick is that the Atlanta Journal Constitution, which is the paper in Atlanta and the main media entity that covers the Braves, uh, does not allow their members to vote on awards. It is a conflict of interest. And so the New York Times also does this. There are several outlets around the country whose members, uh, whose writers can be members of the organization, but they are prohibited from, from voting on their postseason awards. Um, they're theoretically prohibited from post voting on the Hall of Fame as well, but because those records are not open, they may or may not do that. But for the purposes of the postseason awards, uh, they are not eligible. So uh, MLB.com also covers the Braves, but MLB.com members are excluded from the BBWAA because they work for an entity that is owned by the major league teams. Uh, so when you remove uh, MLB.com's writer and uh, the Atlanta Journal Constitution writers, you're not left with a large number. You're left <laughs> so, with Dave Cameron and another dude. Yeah, the, so the chapter head is a guy named Guy Kurtwright, uh-huh. who is not an active uh, uh, member of the Atlanta media, but has but has been in the past. And uh, so he's he's the chapter head. And then there's me, who lives five hours away. And yeah, that, and that's your voting body of the Atlanta chapter of the BBW. How do you uh, do? You like your chances, maybe, of Sunday being the head. Of the Atlanta chapter, or do you think it's going to be a tough, a, t- a tough fight? I, I think that um, it would be a little weird to have someone run the chapter who lives in another state. No, yeah, it's all curious. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's very peculiar. So, so manager. Wait, was it NL manager? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, right. Because I'm in the Atlanta chapter, so we have NL votes. Right. So. Okay. So NL manager of the year and also NL MVP. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's. Uh, I want to just ask you, I'm not, maybe specific names, maybe not. That's a little bit less interesting to me at the moment than, in particular, your methodology, what you think your methodology will be for deciding the manager of the year. Uh, yeah, that one is, I think, the more tricky of the two. I think so. Obviously, the MVP one is going to probably take more of my time. Uh, but the manager of the year, I think, the reality is we have no real good way to evaluate how well a manager did, especially as an outsider. I mean, maybe if you were embedded with the team every day, you could see, uh, you know, an influence of a manager and encouragement and kind of coaching and, and those kinds of things. But as an outsider, what most writers and voters on this award have generally done is taken the expected preseason record and then the difference between their actual uh, record at the end of the year, and the guy with the biggest difference between what we expected to happen and what actually happened gets the award, which is a little silly because we're setting up our preseason expectations as the baseline of truth and assigning all overachievement to the manager. So we say, you know, we think, uh, say the Kansas City Royals, for instance, uh, are a 500 team, but they might actually win their division. Uh, so we're going to give all of that credit to Ned Yost. It could be that we were just wrong rather than Ned Yost was good. Uh, but uh, yeah, And also it should be noted, right, like Ned Yost has been there for a number of years. And so right. what, what was he, you know, what was Ned Yost doing before? Should right. he have gotten unmanager of the year? Right. I mean, I think this is one of the things is like in the absence of facts, people just pick something. And, you know, when it comes to the other awards, they've done this too. They picked wins and losses for pitchers and RBIs for hitters. And these are not good metrics either. So, you know, the, the history of numbers deciding which players win awards are silly across the board. 
but with the manager of the year, it is still silly to, right. I mean, you, but you, there does have to be some kind of rational reasoning for why you vote for things. The problem is we just don't know what it should be. What do you, so, uh, I guess the question is, I mean, you're going to be asked to, to cast a vote. Uh, so how will you do it? Uh, to be honest, I'm not sure. Uh, okay. So I'm going, I'm going to probably try to not just do the team that overperformed what their preseason expectation and then vote that way. Um, but I don't know a better way. <laughs> and I think there probably is one, but I have not yet figured it out. I mean, I just found out I was voting for this award Thursday. Mm-hmm. So it's been four days. Uh, I think I will probably try and talk to people who are around teams far more than I am uh, and get some sense of like a, maybe a slightly more insider-ish perspective. Um, and, and I think I, beyond that, I am not sure how I will vote. Now, do you think that the distribution of talent among managers, and perhaps it's a question of opportunity on their part, is it, uh, is it a more narrow distribution than, say, among players? Probably, yeah. I mean, I think uh, it is unlikely that the best manager is a seven or eight wins shift on a per-season basis. Um, I think it is unlikely that the worst manager is uh, below replacement level, or, you know, you could go pluck a manager out of AAA and he would be just as good. Uh, so I think the spread in between them is probably smaller. But on the other hand, I think we also don't have enough data to say for sure. I, I would not be confident in my assessment. It is possible that at some point in the future we're going to find out that managers actually make a really big difference or at the very least some kind of coaching makes a big difference. Player development makes a difference and, and the manager you hire is responsible for bringing in the coaching staff and so you would give him credit for hiring the pitching coach, I guess, or the hitting coach or whoever. Um, especially nowadays with defensive positioning and shifting, who do you give credit to for a team that shifts really well? Do you give it to the manager as like a proxy for the entire team uh, being prepared ahead of time and, and saving value for their team? I don't know. Right. And then, uh, I mean, this will be the first time you've voted on the MVP award, which is exciting. But, of yep. course, you have thought about it at some length. You might even think at too much length in the past, <laughs> um, the, the arguing – um, for MVP awards or why, why someone who's very good might not necessarily be a candidate. Uh, I mean, are you going to sort of, are you, will you probably basic, follow the basic methodology that you have endorsed in the past, which is, you know, maybe to use a tool like wins above replacement to identify a, a small group of players and then look at the, uh, the various merits of those players now that you've established that group? I mean, let's be honest. I'm just going to sort by war and, and rank them that way. My ballot is just going to reflect so one through ten on, yeah. on wins above replacement. No, I mean, I think uh, my general consensus has always been that the MVP, it's it's almost impossible to argue that war is wrong enough that the most valuable player in the league is not going to be in the top, say, 15, right? Like, if you, or maybe 20. Like, wh- wh- however accurate you think war is. And, it, you know, certainly it's not precise down to the decimal level. Uh so if a guy has, you know, 5.9 and 5.1, I'm not going to take the guy who's 5.9 just because his war is higher. If a guy is 5.9 and another guy is 3.2, I think it is almost impossible to argue rationally for the guy at 3.2. Right. So I would say of the top 15 or 20 players in war, those guys will get more serious consideration. I do plan on 
doing my best to give everyone consideration who people think is a valid candidate. Even if I don't agree with them, I would like to have people, and I'll probably write posts on this over the next few months, because I'm not, now that I've been given a ballot, I'm not allowed to say who I'm going to be voting for. Uh, I don't even know who I'm going to be voting for right now, but even when I do make a decision, I won't be allowed to say who it is until the winner is revealed. But I will, I will probably write about the decision making process and the candidates and, um, I will encourage people who, uh, feel like a certain candidate, um, may not get the, the notoriety or, or the kind of the chance to make their case known, uh, to make that case. And I would love to read it and I would like to make sure that my decision is, is not based on not doing my homework on a certain candidate. My response to that, typical unreasonable Dave Cameron. Yeah. I mean, that is what I'm known for. Unreasonable, as always. Yeah. Uh, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Uh, yes, you did that, you did that. Oh, <clears throat> as I noted, I would ask you about, allow me to actually actually ask you about it. We'll return to this, the voting stuff at a later date. But as I was excited that you would. Uh, you were this week. The reason we're doing this on a Tuesday uh, and not a Monday is because you were in transit yesterday because you were coming back uh, from the Sabre Seminar in Cambridge. Uh, that's true. I mean, the actual reason we didn't do this yesterday is because you were at the DMV, but yeah, this right. is a good excuse to cover for your It time. was a way more exciting reason. You're yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. So what happened there? Uh, it sounded fun. It, how did the Fangrass event go for, uh, for one? It was fun. So Friday night at the Mead Hall in Cambridge, we had, I don't know, probably somewhere between 50 and 100 people showed up. Uh, and we had, there's, you know, so Mead Hall is kind of like a two-story uh, bar and the upstairs is a little private room that they sectioned off for us so that we would not disturb the cool people trying to get laid. Uh, <laughs> so all of the guys who clearly had no chance. The vulgar, uh, the vulgar Dave Cameron comes out. Right, exactly. Uh, we were all cordoned off to our own little corner. Uh, but they, you know, you have your own like kind of personal bartender in the area and it, it's a nice place. And so, uh, you know, basically spent four hours just talking baseball with folks who wanted to talk baseball and uh, caught up with some friends, spent a decent amount of time talking with Matt Swartz and his his wife. Uh, um, but, yeah, just lots of people who were interested in coming and hanging out, some of whom were going to the conference, some of whom were not. Uh, but just a good time to hang out and talk baseball stuff with baseball people. Yeah, right. I mean, this is a situation right, where there's a lot of common ground. There's a, there are a lot of things. Like, if you... You know, like as you're walking around Winston-Salem and you see friends that you know, if you're getting into a baseball conversation, they might say, ugh, Atlanta is terrible or something, Atlanta something, right? And you're like, yeah, okay, yeah. Because you're like, do you, do you really want to have the conversation? Do you want to have the conversation about how good Atlanta is or isn't? But when you're with the, among nerds, there, there's a lot of shorthand you can use, I suppose. Yeah, I think you're assuming that I have friends in the area who like baseball. <laughs> yeah, well, even there's that too. Right. Like, no, oh, I, I heard I, that one guy was good. Is another. Yeah, thing. I I think uh, most of my friends just don't bring it up because they don't want to get dragged into a baseball discussion with me. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it is nice to kind of have a, a weekend or some weekends throughout the year where uh, there are people who I can have a conversation with about things that I've written or things that are interesting interest to both of us, rather than feeling like. I'm talking at my friends and they don't actually know what I'm talking about. Right. Well, the, and the other thing is because I know that, you know, uh, well, you will have exchanges with other Fangraphs writers, uh, maybe, uh, you know, other other baseball writers elsewhere, people in front offices. But I think a, a, something to note is that the Fangraphs readers 
are composed of people who are doing uh, work in other um, disciplines. And uh, for me, I know it's always um, it's always useful to to uh, import essentially ideas uh, from other disciplines and, and see how they might see how they might be applied or might work with the game. Yeah, is there a question in there? Or I wanted you. I... I just say a thing, and now you. Like, oh yeah, that's a good point. That for example, this happened or something like that. I was hoping that would happen. Uh, well, that was a good point. For example, I don't have any examples. No. Well, maybe that doesn't happen then. <laughs> yeah, right. No, I think uh, I I think that what you said is true. Okay, very good. Well, I've made a valid point. I'm, yeah, good I'll, job. I'm now pleased with myself. <laughs> um, very good. Uh, and then the to the seminar itself. Um, so wait, so pe- people are talking about GIP. GIP. Yeah. GIP. Is that how you say it? Yeah. That's that's uh, that was a takeaway that I saw. Uh, sure. So GIP was the humor, humorous interlude in Dan's, Dan Brooks's, um, framing, uh, discussion where he kind of reintroduced or just explained the framing model. Dan Brooks, you should say. Dan Brooks of Brooks Baseball. Yes, Dan Brooks of Brooks Baseball and founder, co-founder of the event, uh, was talking about the catcher framing model that he and Harry Pavlidis have, uh, derived. Uh, and in it he was, uh, you know, so he, he would, he, sometimes these talks can get long. Uh, not that Dan is not a good speaker. He is, a, is actually a very good speaker. But at the, you know, Sunday afternoon, after you've been sitting in a chair for uh, many, many hours, including the, almost the entire previous day, you need some humor. So Dan introduced uh, the Google image percentage. So he basically Googled, like, phrases, Miguel Cabrera hitting. And then, you know, on the Google image search, you'd see all these, like, Miguel Cabrera uh, celebrating home runs, and same thing with David Ortiz, you know, pointing at the sky after hitting a walk-off, and you'd have all these Google images of these, you know, notorious hitters uh, celebrating their offensive accomplishments. And then he Googled Jose Molina hitting, and if you do so, at least when Dan did it, of the ten images that show up on the, you know, kind of above the fold, uh, eight of them were not of Jose Molina. They were of other people. Uh, <laughs> batters, like it was David Ortiz was there a couple of times. Uh, there was like a random Blue Jay who was not Jose Molina. And then Jose uh, Molina it frequently, I assume, is in the back of these watching yeah, the ball like get hit. Catching yeah. while someone is hitting. And then there were two of Jose Molina bunting. <laughs> and, and then I think, uh, so maybe there was, maybe there were seven that weren't Jose Molina. And then there was one that was like Jose Molina standing there with a bat on his shoulder. But there were no like, uh, Jose Molina home runs or something. So, uh, this was Dan's way of saying, based on a Google image search for player names and then hitting, you can determine how good a hitter is with some, some accuracy just by the percentage of gifts that are, of images that are that player doing the thing. Right. Uh, now, you served as the keynote speaker, the Fangraphs keynote speaker. Uh, no, I, I presented the keynote speakers. Oh, you right, right. No, but right, that's what I should say. You, uh, yes, you presented the keynote speakers. You introduced them. Uh, you said you were going to keep your remarks short. I'm curious, did you do that? And also, uh, I know in these events when you have people who are working inside baseball, uh, they are sometimes – they demonstrate their talent for um, saying a not, a lot, not a lot in – or saying quite a bit but nothing at all simultaneously – I was wondering if if that's how it went, or if you uh, were able to extract something from them. Well, so uh, just to give people a sense of what like the Fangraphs keynote was. So essentially, we donated uh, enough money to receive a kind of like a Kickstarter here, where Fangraphs uh, gave more money than all the other sponsors, I guess, uh, or we gave enough to be uh, 
deemed the keynote sponsor when we donated a while back because we really like this event. Um, so as our reward for donating to this event, uh, we were given the opportunity to introduce the keynote speaker, and then it turned out there were two of them because both Ben Sherrington and Jeff Lunau came to speak, and they didn't want to make one GM seem less important than the other. So there were two keynotes, and, and our perk was that I got to introduce them. Right, is, not necessarily a perk for the people gathered there. Sure, yeah. Well, yeah. so I will say uh, that Jeff Lunau went first on Saturday, and uh, my introduction of him I think went over fairly well, mostly because I – you know, was explaining, you know, that he was with St. Louis and he did some good things there when they were doing player development stuff and drafting well and now he's with Houston. And then I uh, exposed him as a secret agent of Fangraphs uh, who has secretly been working to oh, yeah. undermine our competitor by hiring all of the smart people from Baseball Perspectives. And I thanked him publicly for uh, destroying our competitor uh, by hiring all of their best people. And uh, that joke went over pretty well. Yeah, that's, well, that's a good joke. And I, or is it a joke? Is the real thing? <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we're not actually paying Jeff Lou now any money, yeah. but I do appreciate him hiring all of BB's people. Uh, he actually, I think, enjoyed the joke as well and laughed. Uh, I didn't. You know, with Ben Sherrington, I I could not make the same joke because they have not hired people from Baseball Prospectus, uh, at least not at the same notable level as the Astros. Um, so I made some comment about uh, him serving as co-GM in the year that uh, Theo Epstein snuck off in a monkey suit, uh, which was not as funny. <laughs> That's good. He really. Yeah. Did they say anything of note? Uh, so I think Lunau was interesting in that you know he probably spoke for the first twenty of his thirty minutes instead of taking questions. He kind of talked about the buy-in that's required between front office coach and players and how they've had some trouble with, you know, for instance, shifting uh, where, you know, players have pushed back and Bud Norris and some others have said, I don't want you doing this with me. And, uh, you know, whenever things don't work out very well, people remember that the shift was putting position players in a position that weren't normal and then it didn't work, but no one remembers when the shift does work and saves them plays. And so kind of talked about the challenge of, integrating a good idea and how it's not as easy as just having the good idea. Um, and so I think that was that was interesting. There were a few questions I asked, including the inevitable Brady Aiken question. Those were, you know, kind of dodged, as you would expect. Uh, Sherrington, I think, was more open um, in a- answering kind of, a, you know, about their, their team struggles this year and their offensive issues and um, – he, I think he also, in his kind of opening statements, um, expressed some desire to talk about things that weren't just, hey, ask me about Jackie Bradley. Like he, he wanted to talk about, uh, or he encouraged people to ask him about kind of questions about the game as a whole. Right. Uh, but then I think people just kind of ignored Sherrington's request to talk about non-specific Red Sox things and asked him the inevitable questions that you're going to ask. I mean, if, if you're going to get one chance to ask the Red Sox GM something, you're probably <laughs> yeah. not going to ask about pace of play, right? You're probably going to ask him about something related to the Red Sox. Uh, and he was, you know, more, more open than most. And John Farrell was somewhat open uh, when, when he was asked as well. Uh, but there, there's limits to what they can say. I mean, these guys aren't going to criticize their own players. They're not going to say something that's going to show up in the paper the next day. So I think you know when you ask questions of a front office member, um, if you ask a specific question about a specific thing, you're going to get a vague answer. Right, okay. Well, 
Well, that's interesting. Now, how about uh, maybe for you, because um, I think the Sabre Seminar in particular has produced some interesting studies before, um, interesting pieces, and I'm curious if there's like one or two ideas uh, with which you left uh, the the seminar thinking, oh, yeah, that's that's pretty smart. So I will say my favorite part of the Sabre Seminar, which is not to take away from any of the big-name notable panels or any of that such, is that Dan has done a great job over the last few years of getting college students or sometimes high school students uh, to submit what they call abstracts. So instead of presenting a fully fleshed out idea for 40 minutes, they get 10 minutes to kind of give you high-level thoughts of something they're working on that may or may not be conclusive, but is at least an interesting idea. And because they're only 10 minutes, you can do a bunch of them. So I think there were seven or eight abstracts presented over the course of two days, some on Saturday, some on Sunday. Uh, one of the guys who presented this weekend, presented two years ago, in, uh, and had the best abstract by far. His name is Michael Shader. Uh, not a, not a name that, you know, baseball analysts will likely be familiar with. I don't think he publishes work, uh, online anywhere, but he does some really interesting stuff. He did, uh, so he collected some data based on, uh, channel changes, based on New York metro area data and how it relates to a Yankee game. So kind of like how people, actually watch a game as it's going on um, with, like, time-stamped win expectancy uh, oh, charts. That's, oh, that's fun. So we kind of looked at it and said, like, in the first inning of this uh, Yankees-Tigers game from last August, uh, here were the percentage of people, here were the number of people watching, and then as the game went on, you could see the number rose, and as, uh, you know, the Yankees were winning, and it was later in the game, more people would tune in and, and not change the channel, and they watched the rest of the game. And then he picked another game uh, where the Tigers took like an eight nothing lead in the third inning, and you could see everyone change the channel. And so like that was uh, you know something you don't see talked about very often. Uh, and I think Michael's work is, is quite good. I have a, a lot of respect for him, and so I enjoyed his presentation. Uh, there was another presentation from a, a guy named Frank Furkey, uh, and he kind of did a little bit of a pitch effect study that I've never seen before, or at least haven't seen researched in, in the way that he did, where he looked at kind of the ratio of ball strike called um, in certain areas of the strike zone based on whether it's a day game or a night game or indoors or outdoors, uh, hypothesizing that maybe in the evenings uh, umpires are um, more likely to call a different type of pitch than they are in the daytime. Perhaps in, in the day, day, daytime, I've heard this hypothesized before, that umpires on a getaway day where everyone has to go catch their flight after a three- or four-day series, and it's the final game of the series, everyone just wants to get out of there and the strike zone becomes huge. Uh, so he presented data kind of showing that the strike zone is different in day games and night games. There are more pitches called down in the zone. I think in day games uh, or maybe in night games and in dome stadiums, the low strike is more more common. Uh, and in day games, the high strike is more common. Um, and, you know, I think that's a, an interesting idea that I had not yet seen evidence for. Yeah, no, that, that's pretty fun. Uh, now, listen, uh, I myself uh, need to get going. I have lunch with my father. I'm going All to have right. lunch with my father. But I did want to ask you about two things, uh, and this is the exact reason why I most enjoy the, this podcast is because um, if I see a mention of this somewhere, I say, I don't have to learn too much about it. I'll just ask Cameron on the podcast. Uh, I'm looking for brief summaries of uh, the following news events. There are two of them. I was wondering first if you could just give – because the coverage generally of the biogenesis affair is miserable. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, I was hoping that you might be able to uh, provide a brief summary of the biogenesis whatever. 
Ah, uh, you mean like the latest events, or do we want to talk about what happened last year? No, the one that the thing that happened recently. So nothing really happened lately. I mean, so basically what happened is the U.S. Uh, attorney's office or the the federal government uh, arrested some people, including uh, Tony Bosch, who was the kind of the lead of the uh, biogenesis uh, scandal, uh, and I think uh, a few other people related to that. Uh, and began um, a formal investigation or or a formal prosecution of of the key components of the biogenesis. In some of this, there's been some suggestion that perhaps the new names will be uncovered and maybe we'll see another suspension or two, but nothing has really come of that since the arrests. Um, and from a Major League Baseball perspective, they weren't really involved in this. This is the government kind of prosecuting criminals. So while they are tangentially related to baseball, it doesn't really matter too much for you. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. That's uh, very helpful. Um, mm, oh, yeah. Second thing. Here we are. Uh, the commissioner. Yeah. There's, there's there's a new new, there will be a new one. There is a new yeah. one? Uh, there will be a new okay, one. Okay. All right. Well, what about him? Rob Manfred. Mm-hmm. He has been Bud Selig's right-hand guy for a while and was the hand-picked successor. Uh, I think... It was kind of inevitable that Manfred was always going to be the guy, um, and there, you know, a few kind of splinter cell owners tried to to elect Tom Warner instead, but that didn't go anywhere, uh, and Manfred was finally chosen. Uh, I think Manfred seems like a good choice in that, you know, as much as we might not like some of the things that Bud Selig has done, and I don't, I certainly don't like everything he's done. Um, baseball is doing well, right? So like, uh, there's the old why upset the apple cart. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, cliche. Yeah. Baseball's apple cart is doing quite well. Yeah. Record revenues, teams are making lots of money, the sport is popular, the sport is growing. Uh, do you really want to drastically change things when things are going well? Probably not. And Manfred is kind of the continuity candidate. He will continue to do things that Selig did and, uh, I think overall is kind of the, the least controversial pick in a time when baseball doesn't really need controversy. Right. Alright. So, no, so, Apple carts is the thing, is the takeaway from there. Yeah, have okay. some apples. All right. Well, uh, look at this. You have filled your obligation once again to Fangraphs Audio. In time to get you out for lunch. Yeah, that's right. Uh, is there anything else we need to add that I did not uh, did not ask you about? Uh, you have not told the valued listeners what kind of dog you got. It's a terrier mix. Maybe it's part uh, toy fox terrier, to, or maybe... Uh, Schnauzer or Cairn Terrier. Could be a number of things. She's from Mississippi. That's what I know. How how old? I think about a year. Oh, okay. So you didn't get a puppy. No. I mean, you get a puppy-ish, but you didn't get like a brand new puppy. And I would say with regard to her conduct, puppy-ish is about right. She's Yeah, uh, well, yeah. She will not grow out of the puppy conduct for a while. Yeah. She's housebroken, but um, she is uh, annoying in some other ways. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of like you. Yeah, yeah. There you go. I'm 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 almost housebroken. <laughs> um, uh, no, it's been her name. Her name is America. Um, uh, yeah. And so I think uh, when we this was mentioned yesterday, uh, someone noted how patriotic our dogs' names were because your dog is named America and mine is named Liberty. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No. no uh, that and which is fine. Patriotism is not the mostly we did it. Um, so that we can make grand claims about the, about the country we live in. <laughs> so, for example, we have a list on a refrigerator that says America's needs. 
Nice. And, uh, you know, um, yeah, we can make grand pronouncements about America. Like, it's great for, like, tweeting when your dog, like, decides to not be housebroken for a minute or gets yeah. scared. You can be like, America is pissing in the corner. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, yeah, well, everything has, like, a sort of allegorical feeling to it. Well, actually, yesterday we, we met another dog that jumped over her. Um, they were in the same hallway and the dog just jumped, leapt over her. And, uh, we said that this dog, Banjo, had jumped over America. Yeah. Which is also amusing. You see the endless amusement. Right. Or at I, least I, it, I, look, I look forward to your dog attacking someone and be like, America is at war. Yeah, America, right. yeah. Right. Well, that's probably going to happen. Yeah. All right. You, like I said, you fulfilled your obligation. You did a good job. Thanks. All right. That has been uh, Dave Cameron, uh, managing editor of Fangraphs and also big-time BBWA member. Uh, I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.